At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, thank you so much for joining us in worship, my favorite worship service of the year, Good Friday, so powerful, so potent, so dark, but also so wonderful, and I pray that this service would be a blessing to you, and um, look forward to opening God's Word as we continue to worship Him. Um, My name's C.T. Eldridge, the campus pastor here at Woodside Lapeer, and uh, again, just want to extend to you a welcome. Um, and grateful that you've joined us and are celebrating Easter weekend, celebrating Good Friday with us tonight. And uh, we'll be here Sunday. Friday's not the end of the story. Sunday morning, we'll be back. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're opening Matthew's gospel once more. Um, We've been in chapters 24 through 25 over the last few months when Jesus had his last formal teaching session with his disciples. This two-chapter-long discourse, we refer to it as the Olivet Discourse, as the Discourse on Last Things. That was chapters 24 and 25. Immediately after Jesus teaches the disciples there on the Mount of Olives, he heads back into the heart of the city where Jesus and his disciples practice the Lord's Supper, what we've now come to know as the Lord's Supper. For them, it was still a Passover meal, but Jesus was creating a new Passover meal as he is the new Passover lamb. He is the Messiah and the fulfillment of that tradition, and he created a new tradition in light of that, and we're going to celebrate it later this evening as we get closer to the end of our service Um, We're doing it a little bit different. You may notice that we didn't have the tables outside with communion cups there. If you're going to take part there in the little cup holders in front of you, Um, they're still just as fidgety to open up. Um, So you may have to, you know, wet your fingers or ask a neighbor for help to get those things open. But but we're going to do what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Right after Matthew 24, 25, he did that with his disciples in Matthew 26, And then he's betrayed, and then he's arrested, and very quickly the scene shifts towards Jesus' trial, um, where Barabbas is let go and Jesus is condemned to death. The Jewish community, the religious leaders condemn Jesus to crucifixion, but they don't have the legal right, being under the authority of the Roman Empire and being under the Roman's governor, Pontius Pilate, the Jews then had to deliver Jesus to Pontus, and Pontus, through his Roman cohort, soldiers, were able to carry out the execution. So that's where we are within the narrative of Jesus' passion. He's been condemned by the Jewish crowd and the religious leaders of the Jews. He's been handed over to Pontius Pilate, and now Pontus has given him to the soldiers where they're going to do the rest of the job. So we're picking up the story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 through 44. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 through 44. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters 
and they gathered the whole battalion of soldiers before him. And they stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before Jesus, the soldiers mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Jesus there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The cross of Christ. What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase? We place this symbol on the top of our church buildings in this esteemed position for all to see. We wear this symbol around our necks or on other pieces of beautiful jewelry. Maybe even an elaborately designed cross hangs on a wall in your home. Or maybe a cross has been inked into your skin in a tattoo with an intricate or interesting design. Or perhaps you've seen a casket adorned with an ornate cross. And if not a casket, perhaps a tombstone skillfully shaped in the shape of a cross. Some of history's most beautiful artwork, masters like Da Vinci, Raphael, and Michelangelo, some of history's most beautiful artwork is dedicated to the subject of the cross. And some of history's most beautiful music, pieces by Beethoven and Bach, they lament and celebrate the cross of Christ. So the image of the cross of Christ fills our world in all sorts of ways, from tattoos to symphonies, and it's often depicted as beautiful, desirable, glamorous even. 
But as we read this account of Jesus' crucifixion, it is anything but beautiful, desirable, and glamorous. It is hideous. It is gruesome. It is deeply troubling. For anyone to be treated the way Jesus is treated would be appalling. For anyone to be treated this way, but to see Jesus treated this way. This man who was supremely loving. This man who was impeccably wise. This man who was full of joy and love and peace and grace and strength. To see him treated this way is unthinkably awful. But as bad as it is, let's not shy away. Because oftentimes, seeing something gross, seeing something disturbing, all we can do is look away. The shame and the pain and the disgrace of it forces us to turn away. But this scene is here for us in Scripture so that we might come face to face with the consequences of our sin. This scene is recorded for us so that we can look squarely at the truth of what it took to pay the price for our sin. So in studying this passage, I've identified three ways Jesus is humiliated. Three ways we can perceive the wages of sin. First, Jesus' kingdom is rejected. Jesus' kingdom is rejected. So perhaps in more than any other gospel, Matthew's gospel emphasizes Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew lays out Jesus' genealogy as the son of David, and the rightful heir to King David's throne. In chapter 2, the magi, these wise men, travel from the east, having seen this star, and they ask when they get to Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist's preaching ministry begins. And in chapter 4, Jesus' preaching ministry begins. And Matthew summarizes their message in the same way. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he does it for John. And chapter 4, verse 17, he summarizes their message this same way. Here it is. They say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This short sentence is a summation of what Matthew later refers to in chapter four as the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that God's heavenly kingdom has come to earth with the coming of Christ. Jesus is seeking to make it on earth as it is in heaven through this heavenly takeover and the spread of his kingdom as people repent and trust in him. But what we see at his crucifixion is that both Jews and Gentiles alike soundly reject Jesus' kingdom. Instead of honoring him as king, 
They mock him as a poser. Instead of clothing him with a regal, noble robe of a king, they give him a sham cloak. Instead of giving him a powerful, imposing scepter to wield as king, they put in his hands a measly reed. Instead of offering their most precious metals and jewels for a crown, they twist a crown of thorns and then painfully lodge it on his head. Instead of offering themselves in humble, joyful service to the king, they beat him as a criminal and they spit on him as a beast. Instead of lifting him high in joyous celebration as the world's true and victorious king, they pin him on a cross and they hoist him high, stripped, beaten, shamefully exposed. And over his head, they nailed a sign that communicated the charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. You see, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven, it confronted the world's view of power. The world says, dominate your enemies. Dominate your political enemies, your military enemies. Dominate them. But the king of heaven taught, love your enemies. What good is it if you love those who love you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? No. Love your enemies. The world says, win at all costs. Win at any cost. Win whatever it takes. Just win. The king of heaven says, sacrifice at all costs. If someone asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two. If someone asks for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. The son of man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to sacrifice his very life as a ransom for many. The world says only the strong survive, only the powerful survive. But the true king says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The world says, dominate your enemies, win at all costs, only the strong survive. And so Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven and power just doesn't compute for these Jews and Romans. And so they reject him as king and they resist his call to repentance. And so church, we too have to ask ourselves, what's your view of power? What's your ideal of a king? Is it a domineering, ruthless, merciless tyrant? Is it a view that concedes to certain people being taken advantage of because, hey, win at all costs? 
Is it a view that allows for hatred toward the enemy, hatred toward hateful words, hateful actions? Because, hey, we got to dominate. We got to win. We got to show them who's boss. Does your view of power and strength mean that you got to cover up all your weaknesses? Can't show any weaknesses. Got to act tough. Friends, if any of that is true of us, then your view of power is more in line with the ways of the world than the way of Christ. God's power is made perfect through weakness. There is strength in vulnerability. True power is shaped like a cross, not a sword. Not a con, not big muscles. On the cross, Jesus' kingdom was rejected so that now we could have the opportunity to receive the kingdom by clothing ourselves in humility, acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging our weakness. Three ways Jesus is humiliated. Three ways we can see what our sin cost him. Jesus' kingdom is rejected. Jesus' salvation is denied. His salvation is denied. So listen again to what's spoken to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. This was apparently a public space because people are just passing by and we get a comment from one of those passing by, and we then hear a similar comment from the religious leaders and chief priests, as they're called. So this is chapter 27, verses 39 through 42. Matthew writes, And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you indeed are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe him. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. You saved others. You can't save yourself. Come down from the cross and we'll believe you. So it is assumed here by these people who mock Jesus. It is assumed that if he is the real deal, he will save himself. He wouldn't let this happen to himself. And their assumption is so strong that they are willing to publicly shame him to mock him to his face because in their minds, there's no way if he's the savior that he can't save himself. And this goes to show that they had already denied the way of salvation laid out by Jesus prior to this. Earlier in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 24 through 25, Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would follow me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then come follow me. In other words, if anyone would follow me, he can't live 
for himself. He can't elevate himself. He can't prioritize himself over God and over others. Instead, he's got to deny himself, take up a cross, this instrument of death to self, and then come follow me. And then in verse 25, Jesus continues, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would save his self will lose his self. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the way of salvation. Self-denying, cross-bearing, death to self, denial of self. But what do the mockers say? Save yourself. Don't deny yourself. Save yourself. Don't bear the cross. Come down from the cross. So besides Christianity, every other religion, every other philosophy of life is ultimately a self-salvation project. And there are more secular versions of this that include saving yourself through hard work. Saving yourself through making a bunch of money. Saving yourself through beautifying your body. Saving yourself through maximum sensual pleasure. A few secular options that are popular. And there are more religious versions of this. Saving yourself by following the religion's rules. Completing the five pillars of Islam. Walking the eightfold path of enlightenment in Buddhism. Working your way up the casteism in Hinduism. But whether secular or religious, these are all ultimately self-salvation projects, doing it yourself, achieving it on your own. Maybe there's some spiritual inspiration. Maybe God is involved somehow, but ultimately you save yourself. But the message of the gospel is just the opposite. Not only are we not to save ourselves, we can't save ourselves. And in fact, we're called to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves. We're called to remove ourselves from the center of our universes and to submit to Jesus as Lord. He is supreme. He is the center. But not only do we die to ourselves by submitting to Jesus as Lord and making him our center, we also die to ourselves by considering others more significant than ourselves. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul calls us to in Philippians chapter 2. In that chapter there, he's meditating on the death of Christ, and he draws this conclusion based on the example of Christ set before us. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. In other words, don't save yourself. Don't prioritize yourself. Don't elevate yourself. Deny yourself. Die to yourself by considering others more significant than yourself. Because that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. The true king, hanging, dying. They said, save yourself. 
He said, no, I count you more significant than myself. The Christ, the promised one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, the good shepherd, the eternal God in the flesh. He said, I count you. Broken, sinful you. I count you more significant than myself. And so he stayed on the cross, dying to himself so that we might live. And now he calls us to do the same. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourself. Those who were mocking Jesus, crucifying Jesus, they said, we don't want any part of that. We'll save ourselves. We'll live for ourselves. Thank you very much. And they deny his salvation. As he's crucified, Jesus' kingdom is rejected, his salvation is denied, and finally, his identity is questioned. His identity is questioned. So this last aspect of, this last aspect relates to the way Jesus' identity as the Son of God is once more put to the test and questioned. And I say once more because you remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, twice Satan formulates his temptation this way. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, for the angels will catch you. So Satan is questioning Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and the same thing happens as he's being crucified. Again, listen to verses 39 through 44. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked Jesus, saying he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if God desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So these taunts are meant to communicate to Jesus you are not the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, you wouldn't be hanging on that tree. If God desired you, if God cherished you as a son, then he would deliver you. Therefore, Jesus, you are not God's son. His identity is questioned. His worth as a son is questioned. Think about for a moment your identity as a son or a daughter. It is perhaps the one aspect of our identity that we cannot lose. 
So take me for an example. I am a husband. That is a part of my identity, but I could no longer be a husband. God forbid if Meg died or if we were divorced, I would no longer be a husband. That would no longer be a part of my identity. And I am also a father. That's a part of my identity. But I could no longer be a father. If, again, God forbid, I lost my children to death, I would no longer be a father, at least in the active sense. And I am a pastor. That's a part of my identity, but I could at some point no longer be a pastor. If you guys had had enough or whatever, I would no longer be a pastor. But from the very start of my conception, I have been a son to Charles and Nancy Eldridge. It's perhaps the one aspect of our identity that we've always had and we cannot lose. We are children of our parents. And that part of who we are is foundational to our sense of self-worth, our sense of value, because we receive love and we feel cared for and we're accepted and celebrated by our parents as their children. So being a son or a daughter to our parents is a crucial part of our identity. And here Jesus is, hanging on the cross, and they taunt him, you are not God's son. You are not loved as a son. You are not cherished as a son. You are not celebrated as a son. You are rejected. You are scum. You are nothing. You are rejected by God. You are scum to God. You are nothing to God. You are not his son. Jesus' identity is question. And brothers and sisters, this is Satan's strategy still today for you and me. He wants to convince us to find our ultimate identity in someone else or something else besides who we are in God. He'll try to convince us to find our identities in our families or in our work. He'll try to convince us to find our identity in being religious or in being moral or being conservative or being progressive or being American or being wealthy or athletic or smart or anything. He wants to convince us to find our ultimate identity in anything else besides who we are in God. His creatures, his children, his sons and daughters. And Jesus here shows us the way. Even through the deepest possible pain, even though his circumstances essentially could not have been worse, he knows who he is. From his heart, he embraces the truth, not based on what his taunters say to him, 
but based on what God says about him. From his heart, he embraces the truth that he is the beloved son of the father. And from that place of internal security about who he is, he is able to endure. And the same is true for you and for me. If we know who we are in Christ, that we're loved, we're forgiven, we're free, we're accepted, we're adopted as sons and daughters, if we know who we are in him, then we can endure whatever external circumstances come our way. However loud and however powerful Satan's lies are to you, if you receive from your heart that in Christ you are a child of God, you can endure anything. Jesus shows us the way. And that is why, friends, we glory in the cross. Glory in the cross of Christ. On the one hand, the cross is gnarly and nasty and brutal. The cross meant rejection and shame and pain for whoever was its victim. And the cross of Christ was no different. The cross of Christ meant that his kingdom was rejected. Through the cross, we communicated to God, we don't want to do power the way you would have us. We want a ruler different than you have provided. We rejected his kingdom through the cross. And through the cross, we denied his salvation. We don't want to do selflessness. We don't want to practice self-denial. We don't want to carry a cross and die to ourselves. We denied his salvation. And through the cross, we questioned his identity. Our taunts went to the core of his being. And we said, no, you are not God's son. But mystery of mysteries and mercy of mercies, Jesus underwent all of this so that we could be redeemed. Jesus endured the rejection of his kingdom so that we could ultimately enter his kingdom. Jesus' salvation was denied so that we could ultimately experience this salvation. Jesus endured the questioning of his identity so that we could eventually share in his identity as the children of God. So awful as the cross was, we glory in the cross. We put it on top of steeples and we tattoo it into our skin and we place it in our jewelry because this instrument of torture is also the means of our salvation. And one of the key ways that Jesus himself gave to us to commemorate the cross was the meal I referred to earlier that we now call communion. We now call the Lord's Supper. This very day on the Jewish calendar, the sixth day of Passover week, is when Jesus' body was broken and when his blood was spilled. We identify with this vicious act 
by eating the bread and drinking the cup. And so for you, if you are acknowledging your brokenness and weakness before God, if you are prepared to deny yourself and follow Christ, if you long to be a part of God's family through God's Son, then this meal is for you. Let's eat and drink to the glory of our cross-bearing Savior. But if that's not you, if you are still rejecting his kingdom, his lordship over his life, if you are still denying his salvation by refusing to deny yourself, keeping yourself on the throne of your life, keeping yourself at the center of your life, if you're still questioning his identity, if you don't see Jesus as supremely valuable, the Son of God, the cherished one, the beloved one, if you're still questioning who he is, then I encourage you not to take part. And instead, use this time to reflect on these questions. Where else will you find a king who exercises power with such humility, courage, and grace? Where else will you find a savior who gave of himself so selflessly? And where else will you find the kind of rock-solid internal security that comes from being one of God's children through Jesus? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we've gathered this evening to proclaim the Lord's death through eating and drinking the bread and the cup. We've gathered together this evening to remember, to receive the significance of Jesus' death. The price he paid, the shame he bore, and the love he put on display. God, we as a church say from our hearts, thank you. What kind of God must you be to sacrifice so much? A good God, a loving God, a gracious God, a fatherly God. And so we thank you and praise you and open our hearts now to the grace of Christ. In his name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.